I'm Nathan Rutherford, and welcome to Myth Madness. Today's Olympian is Ares. In myth, Ares was the son of Zeus and Hera, and he was the brother of the childbirth goddess Eulethia and the goddess of youth Hebe. Ares is the god of war, but unlike his half-sister Athena, who was more for the tactics and strategy of war, Ares is the god of what we would call the horrors of war. He is the god of brute force, destruction, and the confusion that comes when two huge armies come together and fight to the death. And one hymn, referred to as Orphic Hymn 65, really highlights this well. Ares is said to be indestructible, doughty, mighty, a valiant divinity, delighting in arms, indestructible, man-killing, and a stormer of cities. Lord Ares, rattling in armor, always defiled with the slaughter of war, rejoicing in man-slaying blood, and raising the clamor of combat, the horrifying one, you who lust for the obscene carnage of swords and spears, halt the raging strife, cease the travail grieving our hearts, rather yield to the peaceful yearnings of Aphrodite and the revels of Dionysus. In short, Ares is a beastly, blood-stained maniac. Similar descriptions come from the variety of epithets and secondary names tied to Ares too. There is Theratus, beastly, Myophonus, bloodstained, Laosos, which means he who rallies men, and Andrefontes, meaning manslayer. But there is also Calcocorustes, armed with bronze, and Chrysopelix, meaning he of the golden helm. That last one is important. Each of the Greek gods usually have a distinct item they are shown with in art that identifies them. For Zeus, this is often a staff or lightning bolt. For Poseidon, it's his trident. For the war god Ares, as you could probably guess, he is always dressed for combat, and usually wears a great big helmet. The kind of Greek helmet with a cover on the side of the face, thin slits for eyes and nose, and a big brush peak thing on the top. Ares even wears this helmet in scenes of feasts. Other than the helmet, he may wear armor, or he may be shown with just a tunic, or even naked too. But what about the name Ares? In the Mycenaean Greek tablets dating as far back as 1450 BC, the name Ares does not actually appear very often. Ari is found in the texts, but more commonly a name Enyalius shows up. This could be an earlier name for Ares, or it could be an entirely other god. However, at least in the time of the archaic Greek poets, Homer, Archilochus, Alcman, and others who lived from 700 to 500 BC, Enyalius was an epithet or secondary name for Ares. So either this was always a name for Ares, and was maybe the original name for Ares, or maybe there were two different gods that were absorbed together into one war god named Ares. Much later, though, Enyalius seems to have been spun off again, and was used as the name for a son of Ares. Going back to the myths, it seems that Zeus was not impressed by his bad boy son. In the Iliad, Zeus says that of all the gods, he hates Ares the most, because he was always fighting. When he fights on the battlefield, Ares is almost unstoppable. He is one of the fastest of all the gods, and will run around slaughtering humans as they fight together. When not fighting, like the other gods, Ares accepts sacrifices. There are a lot of examples of different gods being offered slain bulls as sacrifices by different kings and heroes in Greek mythology. There are also a few examples of human sacrifices, though. 
and a good handful of them were made to Ares. In one story, a man named Menoikius killed himself in a sacrifice to Ares after hearing a prophecy that it would save his city that was under attack. That one isn't that bad. At least Menoikius went willingly. But there are some more grisly examples, too. Oinomaios was a Greek king in Elis, a region in southern Greece. According to Apollodorus, he challenged all the potential suitors that came to marry his daughter to a chariot race. They had to get to a certain point before he caught up to them, and if he did catch them, the king killed them and cut off their heads in a sacrifice to Ares. The war god was apparently in on this too, since the very chariot and weapons that Oinomaos used had been gifted to him by Ares in the first place. There are a few examples of human sacrifice that pop up occasionally in the Greek myths, and that does beg the question, did the ancient Greeks perform human sacrifices? At least occasionally? There are skeletal remains in one site, Mount Lycaon, that indicate sacrifice was at some time performed. For this particular site, this would have been around 1100 BC, so near the end of the time of Mycenaean Greece. But there is very little evidence of human sacrifice, and this suggests that it was only sparingly done, and the question of if the ancient Greeks performed human sacrifice at all is controversial. In the myths, human sacrifice seems to always have a negative cast to it. When it's done, it's usually done by psychopath characters like Oinomaos, or by a desperate few others who will then face consequences for their actions later. At least in the historical periods of ancient Greece, human sacrifice seems to have been seen as an abomination. So Ares did not only accept human sacrifices. In the real world, his worshippers slaughtered bulls and the other usual cultic animals. The Greeks only had a few large temples dedicated to Ares. But he had plenty of other small shrines and other sacred sites scattered across the Greek landscape. Even for other gods, not all of the worship took place in the main temples. Warriors offered prayers to Ares before battles, and even warriors in the Homeric poems were often referred to as the sons of Ares, even though they weren't actually said to be his children. In a number of the myths I explored in the episode so far, we have plenty of examples of gods behaving badly. But what does one do when a god behaves badly? Go to Zeus and ask him to use the old lightning to set him straight? Do nothing and hope for the best? Well, in later Athenian tradition, there's a myth that gives a different, and probably surprising, option. Take them to court. In this myth, recorded by Apollodorus and Pausanias in the Roman period, Ares is the father of a girl named Alcope. This girl found herself at a freshwater spring near Athens one day, where she was attacked and raped by Halirotheus, who was the son of Poseidon and a nymph. Afterwards, Ares captured Halirotheus and killed him in revenge for raping his daughter. Poseidon, though, was unimpressed. As I mentioned in the Poseidon episode, Poseidon's a guilty rapist himself, and likely didn't really consider the crimes of his son being that bad. And he decided to take Ares to be tried by the Twelve Olympians. Ares, though, was acquitted probably because the Olympians considered his killing of Halirotheus to be a just act. This myth was actually part of Athenian propaganda, providing an origin story for the Athenians' use of a rock outcrop outside their city called the Aeropagos as a meeting place for judges to decide cases. So far, I've described Ares as an armor-wearing, indestructible god of violence, a god of might makes right. In the Athenian myth of the trial, it worked out well for Ares, but in a lot of stories, things really don't go well for Ares. In fact, he almost seems like a clumsy god. In one myth, two brothers, Otis and Ephialtes, in fact two giants, 
decided to fight the gods. Ares was sent to be the gods' champion and confront them, but they were able to overpower Ares, tie him in chains, and put him in a big brass cauldron or jar. Unable to escape, he lay there for 13 months, until Euryboea, the stepmother of Otis and Ephaltes, found out and told the god Hermes. The trickster god then found a way to sneak up to the cauldron when the giants weren't looking and break Ares out of it. In another example, Ares is also beaten by a mortal man during the Trojan War, with a little help from Athena, of course. In the middle of a fight between the opposing armies, Ares, who preferred the Trojans, appeared in physical form on the battlefield, and stalked through the Greek armies, killing as he went. Eventually, he spied a Greek man named Diomedes, and rushes towards him with his spear. The goddess Athena, though, who favors Diomedes, intervened. Invisible to Ares, Athena was able to push Ares' spear aside so that he missed Diomedes. Diomedes was then free to counterattack, and with Athena's added strength, he stabbed Ares in the belly, taking him temporarily out of the war. In this case, Athena's cleverness beats out Ares' brute force. And then there's his affair with Aphrodite, which I talked about more in the Hephaestus episode. But as a reminder, Aphrodite was reluctantly married to Hephaestus, but instead, her real lover is Ares, and they have an affair, taking advantage of the days when Hephaestus leaves his palace on Olympus to go to his workshop. Eventually, though, Hephaestus is told about the affair, and he lays a trap for Ares and Aphrodite. The two lovers ended up trapped in a carefully made indestructible net or series of chains, and they become trapped. Hephaestus is only convinced to release Ares after Poseidon interferes and convinces him to let Ares free. From his long-time affair with Aphrodite, though, Ares had several children. There was Phobos and Deimos, Eros, Anteros, and Harmonia. Eros and Anteros were both love and sex gods. They were both in the entourage of spirits that attended Aphrodite. Eros, in particular, is interesting as he is said to be the son of Ares and Aphrodite. But in the earliest accounts, the poems of Hesiod, Eros is the name given to one of the primordial gods that was born out of the original chaos. Phobos and Deimos are twin brothers and the personifications of fear and panic, so I think it's safe to say that they took after their father. As gods, they are little more than helpers of Ares. In the Iliad, they harness his horses and go into battle with their father, but this was no minor task either. Once he was ready to go into battle, Ares, insatiable in battle, blazing like the light of burning fire in his armor, and standing in his chariot, and his running horses trampled and dented the ground with their hooves, and the dust swirled up around them, beaten up between the compacted chariot and the feet of the horses, and the well-put-together chariots, and their rails clattered to the gallop of the straining horses. All in all, he's quite a formidable opponent when on the battlefield. Harmonia, unlike Phobos and Deimos, did not take after her father, as she is the goddess of harmony and getting along. Although a goddess, she seems to have spent most of her time in the world of mortals. She lived in Samothrace, one of the Greek islands, and ended up married to a major Greek hero named Cadmus. Cadmus, for his part, was originally on the bad side of Ares. You see, Cadmus founded the city of Thebes, and in the process he went to a spring and ended up killing a monstrous serpent. That serpent, though, was sacred to Ares, and as punishment, Cadmus had to serve Ares for eight years. Ares had lots of other mortal children too, some with nymphs and minor goddesses, but he also had a lot of mortal human lovers too. A lot of these end up being heroes and villains within Greek myths. These children tend to take after their father, being at best famed warriors, and at worst, arrogant, homicidal psychopaths. 
Sickness, for example, is one of the second group. He lived in a remote part of northern Greece, either Thessaly or Macedonia, and it was his habit to murder any and all travelers who came to stay at his house. Through the woman Autrera, Ares was the father of the Amazon queens Hippolyta and Penthelicia. The Amazons were a tribe of warrior women that the Greeks believed lived on the fringes of their known world, somewhere on the coast of the Black Sea. These Amazons play a role in a number of Greek myths. The Greeks believed that Ares was very important to a lot of the nomadic tribes that lived on the fringes of the ancient Greek world. Herodotus, a Greek historian, says that the Scythians, a horse-riding people from Central Asia that lived around the Black Sea, worshipped Ares in the form of a sword. In addition to the violent destructive Ares, there is another version of Ares too that seems to show itself in the one Homeric hymn to Ares, and I'll read a bit of it now. Ares, exceeding in strength, chariot rider, golden helmed, hardy in heart, shield bearer, savior of cities, harnessed in bronze, strong of arm, unwearying, mighty with the spear, O defender of Olympus, father of warlike Nike, ally of Themis, stern governor of the rebellious, leader of the righteous men, sceptered king of manliness, who whirl your fiery sphere, the planet Mars, among the planets in their sevenfold courses, through the aether wherein your blazing steeds even bear you above the third firmament of heaven. Hear me, helper of men, giver of dauntless youth. Shed a kindly ray from above upon my life and the strength of war, that I may be able to drive away bitter cowardice from my head and crush down the deceitful impulses of my soul. Restrain also the keen fury of my heart, which provokes me to tread the ways of blood-curdling strife. Rather, O blessed one, give me boldness to abide within the harmless laws of peace, avoiding strife and hatred and the violent fiends of death. Hearing this, does this hymn seem strange to you? The language doesn't really match the Ares we've already heard about, the destructive, bloodthirsty Ares. This Ares is a savior of cities. He defends Olympus. He's an ally of Themis, the goddess of the natural order of things. It makes Ares almost seem like a king. If I changed some of the words around, I could probably pass this off as a hymn to Zeus, and no one would think anything of it. Most of the Homeric hymns are believed to have been written down in the 500s or 600s BC, but the strange language of this hymn, and even the specific reference to the planets, makes many scholars think that this hymn was actually a late edition, being written no earlier than the 200s BC, or even as late as 400 AD, towards the end of the Roman Empire. In fact, this hymn, with its descriptions of a more king-like Ares, might make more sense if I talk about the Roman Ares, the god they called Mars. Classically, Mars was the son of Jove and Juno, these being the Roman versions of Zeus and Hera. But the Roman poet Ovid says that Juno became pregnant with Mars when she touched a flower. The story goes that after Jove gave birth by himself to Minerva, the Roman version of Athena, Juno was angry that Jove had a child without her. She went to the Roman goddess of flowers, Flora, asking for her advice, and Flora picked a flower and rubbed it on a cow, which immediately became pregnant. Flora did the same to Juno, who then became pregnant with Mars. This is very much the same situation the Greeks usually give for the birth of Hephaestus, except, of course, for the business with the flower. It seems here the story told by Ovid is a repeat of this, with a swap for Mars instead of Hephaestus. But in Italy, Mars was very important as a city founder. He was supposed to be the father of twin boys on a virgin priestess. These boys were Romulus and Ramus, who, according to legend, were the founders of Rome. Because of that, Mars, unlike Ares in Greece, is very much a god of the nation, a protector of the homeland. In fact, 
The Romans even kept a relic, a spear, which they believed belonged to Mars. This spear was set to shake when the city of Rome was in danger. Mars also had his own special priests. These guys leaped and danced in full armor before wars began. The sacred animals of Mars in ancient Rome were the wolf and the woodpecker. This goes back to the story of Romulus and Ramus. After these two were born, they were abandoned in the countryside, but they survived, mostly because they were suckled from the milk of a female wolf, and a woodpecker who also brought them food. In the Greek myths, Ares had a lot of lovers, the most famous being Aphrodite. He didn't really have a wife, though. In contrast, the Romans were much more finicky than the Greeks about having their gods in male-female pairs. The female pair for Mars, which you can think of as his wife, was a goddess called Nereo, the goddess of courage. Later, the Ares-Aphrodite adultery myth entered Italy, and Mars and the Roman version of Aphrodite, named Venus, were often shown together but often not in the context of adultery. The Roman poet Statius, writing his epic poem The Thebaid in the 1st century AD, crafts a description of a palace of Mars that I want to share here because I think it gives a really good image, kind of like a Dracula's castle or a final level in a video game. Stratius is definitely pulling from the Greek Ares influences in the Roman myth here. He says, Barren forests of Thrace are the haunts of Mars, and on the slopes of a Mount Hamus stands a palace. Its walls are made of iron, its gates are iron, and even the columns that support the roof are made of iron. This palace is a dark and gloomy place. The rays of the sun are weakened as they approach it, and only fires stolen from burning cities were used to light its hallways. The palace is guarded by a ring of a thousand furies, and other sentinels guard it too. They are passion, nephus, the personification of mischief, rage, treachery, and our Roman names for Ares's companions Phobos, Demos, and Eris, as well as Thanatos, the god of death. But what were all these guarding? Well, they were guarding all of Ares's war booty, of course. The spoils of war from every land, multitudes of captured people used as slaves, the broken gates and hinges from captured cities, the masts and rigging of sunken ships, abandoned chariots. Sounds like the yard of this castle was a complete mess, to be honest. But all over the place were statues of Mars, and altars on which only bloodshed in battles was offered. I think you get the drift. It's a palace that would be perfect for a supervillain, or a fantasy novel Dark Lord. So, as can be seen from this description, it seems that Stratius here is pulling from the Greek Ares influences in the Roman conception of Mars. Before leaving off today, I want to say something. A lot of people assume that Greek and Roman mythology is the same. So much so that if you go to your local bookstore and pick up a translation of, say, the Iliad or the Odyssey, there's a pretty high likelihood that the book you pick up will use the Latin names for the Greek gods and heroes. Juno for Hera, Minerva for Athena, Vulcan for Hephaestus, and so on. And I'll admit, even my copies, to my slight annoyance, do this too. And then of course there's also people who say that all Roman mythology is Greek mythology. And to a point, it does make some sense to do all of this. Roman mythology was very much adopted from and based on the Greek myths that came before it. The Greek stories were very popular in Italy during the time different Greek cities set up colonies there, and later when Rome was becoming a major military and cultural power in the Mediterranean. And during that time, there was definitely a lot of crosstalk between the two cultures. But it is a big mistake to think that they are exactly the same. The myths and the wider religion. This is why, in these episodes so far, 
I have generally avoided talking about the Roman versions of the Greek gods, but I have used Roman sources for some of the Greek myths. The reason being is that I think they can show what parts of a myth may have changed over time, what has remained the same, and sometimes they just give extra details that make for a more entertaining retelling. But usually, I have stuck to sources from Archaic Greece, Classical Greece, and the early part of the Hellenistic period. That is, the works of poets, philosophers, playwrights, and bards who sang and spoke Greek. You see, no matter how much the Romans used Greek material, the Romans were also influenced by what was going on in Italy, by earlier indigenous people, especially a group that we call the Etruscans, and other newcomers too. This means that there are some important differences between Roman myth and Greek myth, and these differences and their non-Greek influences, I feel, should really be saved for a series of later episodes exploring them. But that will come in the future. And that's all for today. If you're enjoying this podcast, please head to your preferred streaming platform and give the pod a five-star review. It really helps with getting the pod out to the wider world. As always, thank you for listening.